Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And today I have another very interesting, exciting guest, uh, Chuck Thuss, right? Yes, sir. Had to get that correct. <laughs> um, is a former professional hockey player and certified coach and motivational speaker and author and podcast host. And <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Uh, I had the distinct honor of being on their show, um, uh, Chuck and Clint Malarchik. Uh, do a show called Warriors Unmasked. And I, when I asked to be on the show, I have to plead ignorant. I'm not a hockey fan. And I wasn't aware that you two have like celebrity status in the hockey world. And so I get on this, on this show and I'm thinking, okay, Unmasked, why, why Warriors Unmasked? I mean, where does that come from? Well, you were a goalie and that's kind of where this whole thing came from. So first of all, welcome to the show. I have lots of different topics we're going to cover today, but I want to thank you, first of all, for having me a guest on, on Warriors Unmasked. Well, Jeff, it was a true pleasure to have you. And and as I told you on our show, and I'll tell you on yours, you're such an inspiration. And, and getting to learn about your journey, where you've been, what you've been through, and now the work you're doing, and and to share some of the things that we've shared before we, we came on air, both for our show and for your show, mm-hmm. um, Man, I, I just, I find it a blessing to have you in my life. And I know that it means more than just two podcast episodes. I don't know what it all means, uh, right. but man, I'm, I'm excited to learn because you're an exceptional individual and, and I'm excited to be on your show. So thank you. It's, it's payback time. Now I get to turn the spotlight. <laughs> we get to hear about your life, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, there's a lot to unpack here. You, you just seem like a Renaissance man. You've got so many different things going on. I looked at your website again this morning and, and your Wikipedia's, you know, just, uh, you know, so many different, uh, hockey teams and, and, and leagues and levels and coaching. And so let's go back to the young Chuck and, Talk about the sports you played, kind of what got you into hockey, um, why hockey over other sports, and then really how hockey's kind of um, got you to where you're at to be a resilient person and to be undeterred and all these things that seems like a lot of ex-athletes take into their personal and their business lives. Absolutely. And and I grew up in a really small, we, we were a village it, because we were under 500 people back in Ontario, Canada, a little place called Arcona. That's a tent. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and at the time... Jeff, we didn't even have a stoplight, so it just kind of goes to show. Five hundred people. Yes, yes. So it, wow. uh, but it, it's still home to this day, even though I haven't lived there in a number of years. And um, I, I love going back just to just to go through there because of the memories. But but I grew up in a little village in Arcona called Arcona, Ontario, and um, and hockey back in Canada was was just something that all the young boys and a lot of young girls did. And my older mm-hmm. brother, he started, and um, I've often asked my mom, what what in you know, why me? Why did you put me in the game? And she says, well, you were at the arena anyway, watching your brother. And I figured you may be interested in it. And um, that was a pretty good assumption because it didn't take me long uh, as a young three-year-old when I jumped on the ice for the first time. um, It just caught me and hooked me. And uh, by the time I was four, I I turned to be a goalie and and never never looked back. Uh, Spent just right at, I think, 30 years at the position. And, um, wow. yeah, a lot of, a lot of fantastic memories, a lot of challenges. I'll tell you a lot of challenges. Um, but, but I look at them and, and they made me in part who I am, um, because it can be such a humbling position. Uh, one, now the first thing I'm thinking is three and four years old, you know, I'm 56. I, I can't even ice skate at 56. It's like, you know, and I, in Iowa, we wrestle, you know, and they put these little kids in these baggy singlets and they come out in the mat at two and three and they just look at each other. They don't know what to do. And the mom and dads are screaming. Now, is that the same as, as like peewee hockey? I mean, there's no way these kids at that age know anything about hockey. We knew next to nothing. And we were pushing chairs (laughs) around. We were pushing five gallon buckets around, uh, just to learn and get used to skating and falling and knowing that it didn't hurt that you could get back up and just start pushing again. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was really, it was amazing when I look back now how they, they got us prepared to be hockey players and, and, and the way they taught us to skate and to not be afraid of the ice. And, uh, because when you think of it and you fall, you think it's going to hurt. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you just got up and you just kept going as, as so many young kids are so uh, undeterred by any of that. They just keep going. Were there any other sports? Yeah. As I grew up, I played some golf. Uh, played a lot, okay. a lot of baseball. A lot of baseball okay. because we had a we had a diamond in town and I played for the the, the local league and 
every summer was filled up with with baseball and golf and a lot of soccer and um we played about everything in our neighborhood because all the kids we knew each other and and back then you were safe everybody's parents Mm -hmm. looked at looked after everybody else's kids and um i mean back then jeff we didn't even lock the doors on our house that's that's how safe we were and um, right. And we spent hours and hours playing baseball, soccer, kick the can, hide and go seek, you name it, we mm-hmm. played it. Um, and, and it's much different than it is today because these kids and, and my daughters included, they do sports 12 months of the year. And when you're. Yeah. And, and they have to, they have to like bet on, they have to commit on one or two yes. early. Our sons all went to the largest, you know, the 4A schools in Iowa, which are the biggest schools. And by the time you're in, you know, seventh, eighth grade, you know, if you want to play college, unless you're a freak, you know, a phenom, you got to say, okay, I have to bet on one thing, yes. you know? Yes. Um, and that's if you want to play college or professional, but for most kids, you know, playing three, four sports is only for the small school kids. Yeah. And my daughters had to do the same thing and we've had some tough decisions to make. Right. Um, and they're both uh, high level gymnasts and they've stuck with mm-hmm. it and they love it. Um, but, but, you know, cheerleading and swimming and, uh, volleyball mm-hmm. and all these other things have, have come and, and we, and dance, we've had to have those conversations, but, uh, like you said, in order for them to chase their dream and really be competitive, um, it, it's a one trick pony. And, and, uh, and, and to me, I understand it to a degree, but yet mm-hmm. I think that, uh, kids miss out on a lot by not being able to participate in multiple sports. Like we, well, like we I did when too. we were young. Yeah. Cause I played them all too. Yeah. Uh, and I actually played two sports in college, but I mainly was a basketball player, but the golf team didn't have enough guys yeah. in, in junior college where I went. So I just say I played two sports, Nice, I, nice. you know, it was really, really one <laughs> and I was average at best at that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so go back to high school. So you go through high school, you're obviously a pretty good golfer. And then you commit to go to college. It was Miami, right? Miami university, but there was a little bit before okay. that. Um, I, okay. I was playing junior hockey and I was drafted in a league in Ontario called the Ontario Hockey League. Um, and, and so it's really one of two ways you can go. And, uh, and I thought I wanted to play in the Ontario Hockey League and was drafted and, and went to camp, didn't make the team. I was sent back home. Is that like the minor leagues hockey or it's, something it's, equivalent for us lay people? It's sort of equivalent to college, just not at college. It's a, it's a league that there's three, gotcha. it's, it's a Canadian league and, um, okay. and these kids, they play a lot more games. They play 80 games, I think, as opposed to college, we oh, played wow. 35 or 40. Right. Um, so, so I was drafted there, went, didn't make the team. They called me up partway through the season and, and little did I know back then, my mother said I wasn't going to go. He, I didn't even know they called. Um, and later was then <laughs> draft in an expansion draft. The next summer I was picked up by another team, went there, played about 10 games and, uh, and was cut from there as well. And Hmm. so there were many, many obstacles along the way before I got to Miami. Um, Undeterred. Undeterred is exactly right. And I used to say, you know, why me? Um, I don't understand this. All I want to do is play hockey. I want to play in the National Hockey League, and that's what I want to do. But um, I guess there was was a bigger plan for me, and as we'll continue Mm -hmm. to unpack that. But um, Mm -hmm. so I was was very fortunate because back then, uh, which was in the early 90s, the NCAA, they would allow you to appeal your eligibility. And because I had lost my college eligibility, but I was able to appeal it. And Miami was willing to do that. And uh, yeah, it was pretty fascinating. And so I went uh, to Miami as a freshman, but couldn't play my freshman year or nine games of my sophomore year before I was eligible to play varsity. Um, So there was, there was some bumps and some bruises and some, some toughness along the way, but I, I had my eye on the prize the whole time. And, and, um, you know, it's interesting how you look back and how things played out because that's where I met my wife. Now we've been together 30 years. Um, and, and I guess that's where I needed to be in order to do the things that I was going to do. And, um, but, but my time at Miami wasn't all roses either by any stretch, because like I said, I didn't play mm-hmm. for the first year in nine games, didn't play at all my sophomore year varsity. I, I was playing club hockey. And after my, my sophomore year, I was actually cut from the program. And, uh, the mm. coach just told me he, he didn't think I was ever going to play there. Um, and I, I politely stood up and I said, coach, I said, with all due respect, you're wrong. And I will play here. <laughs> I love and it. I walked out I and slammed it. his, slammed his office door. <laughs> so, wow, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, at that time, Jeff, I really didn't know that he was cutting me from the program, believe it or not. 
I, so mm-hmm. I came back for my junior year, did not play varsity hockey my junior year. I practiced with the varsity team maybe six times and uh, was playing club the whole time. And yes, and after my junior year, that coaching staff left. They went to the University of Denver and who Mm. just won the national championship last weekend. But um, Mm. so we had a whole new coaching staff come in. And I I was able to work that summer with a a world-renowned goalie coach named Mitch Korn. He helped me with my game. And I was invited to training camp my senior year. And there was, uh, I, I actually made the team out of training camp. I was the backup goalie. So I was ecstatic. As a senior, I finally I made the varsity team, and um, there were a lot of tears on the way there, but uh, but I had made it. And uh, six games into the season, I got my first shot. We were playing at Bowling Green State University, and we were getting beat pretty bad. In the final 10 minutes, I got to play. And, right. Jeff, I'll never forget standing in the middle of, of Slater Ice Arena there at Bowling Green, and I was crying. I just yeah, I, I, I just looked around, and the, the emotion overtook me, and, uh, my best friend at the time came back and I looked at him and I said, Milsey, I did it. I'm playing. It's all worth yeah, it. Yeah, I'm playing in a game. And I was just, I was standing there crying in the middle of a hockey game. And, uh, and he puts his arm around me. He says, this is just the beginning. Let's go. Taps me on the pads and he takes off. I'm thinking to myself, I've spent three years to get here. And you told me this is just the beginning. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, and he was right because, uh, the rest of the way, I played every game but one, and uh, yeah. it was quite a story. I was given all kinds of accolades for for my for my work and my dedication. And um, I saw the award, the Terry Flanagan Memorial Award, in your bio. It, it's ironic. It says for his perseverance in staying with the sport despite the lack of playing time. Talk about undeterred. <laughs> I mean, that's just got it right on your forehead, undeterred. Yes, and uh, and I have that. It's interesting because I have that. Uh, trophy hanging up or it's a plaque. I have it hanging up in my back room, my man cave, as a lot of guys call it. And, That's awesome. Um, and I smile every time I look at it because that, that one really, that one really hit me um, to, mm-hmm. to be given that award. And, and then I was given at the end of the year, I was named Miami hockey's first ever first team, all American. So Saw that too. yeah, so yeah. It, it was quite a ride, but what a lot of people don't know, or they're starting to learn about Chuck is that through all of that, I was dealing with things off the ice that even in the 90s, we didn't know about. Now we know it to be test anxiety. So I was dealing with yeah. a lot of ang- social anxiety and test anxiety yeah. and yeah. Um, and trying to navigate that on my own because nobody really knew what it was. And I certainly didn't know how to explain it. I thought I was the only mm-hmm. one that, that was going through it. Um, but man, it was, uh, as, as I look back now and I, I shared with you that I was writing a book and I share with you the different things that I was doing back then to help with that social anxiety and that test anxiety. And, um, man, it, it, it was, that was a tough time, but I, I was able to navigate right. it and, and find my way through it. And, um, it wasn't always that easy. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we continue on. Yeah. So you have a, uh, professional than a coaching, uh, where did you coach or what's your kind of, kind of your best moments in, in the coaching arena. Yeah, it uh, so I went on to like you said I went on to play 8 years professional in which a lot of a lot was very very difficult as well. Um it was enjoyable. I would do it all again and I don't want anybody to think that I wouldn't because I would live it all again but um the anxiety that I I was dealing with at Miami found its way into my hockey game and I used to get sick before every game that I played. Physically mm-hmm. sick. One night I was actually mm-hmm. taken to the hospital. I was having a a panic attack after warm up. But mm-hmm. but in the 90s, nobody knew that. Um, right. I, I don't blame the doctors. I don't blame our medical staff. Just nobody talked about it. Nobody knew what I was dealing with. And um, Were you just nervous of performance or failure? I think both. I think more failure. Uh, as I look back at it, I didn't want to let my right. guys down. I didn't want to be right. the reason that we lost. And, right. um, and, it, and I used to get just it, it, violently ill. I'd be over the garbage can mm-hmm. or over the toilet getting sick. And... Um, and it just drained me before every game as I look back and I think, how in the world did I ever make it through? Um, but I found well, a the way. Average fan, the other f- average fan doesn't understand what, I mean, unless you played sports, you know, what, what the, the, the pregame uh, butterflies, I like to call it, you know. And, um, you know, you know my son's a college golfer, and I, I tell Ian before tournaments, you know, um, be anxious but never nervous. Yeah. 
you know, be anxious. Anxious is awesome. You know, means you're ready. anxious can create. Yeah. It means you're ready. It means you're ready to go. You're excited, but nervous, you know, that, that, that's, that's a negative. And I'm sure as you get into your, we'll talk about your, you know, post playing coaching life and your motivational speaking, all that stuff. You probably talk a lot about the, the pivot from being nervous to becoming anxious, which is actually healthy. Yes, I do speak a lot. And actually I was just uh, texting with one of my clients just a few minutes ago and um, saying just that, hey, it just means you're ready. It's okay. It's mm -hmm. a good to have a little mm -hmm. bit of that in your tummy. It's okay. It means mm -hmm. you're ready because you've put the work in. Um, and, and she went out and placed third in her, in her event today. So she was pretty excited awesome. about that. It was pretty awesome. Um, but, uh, but yeah, after my, after my playing career finished up, I, I turned to coaching and very, very fortunate to coach team USA, uh, world at the world championships for inline hockey. I did that for five years that. and, yeah. um, was able to travel you got a bronze, right. And some gold. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. And, um, yep. traveled to some amazing places, been to the Czech Republic, been to Colombia, been to France, mm -hmm. um, just been to some, Italy, been to some amazing places to, to coach and, um, yeah, won some gold medals on and a bronze medal on the on the international stage. So that's that was really really exciting. It's always neat to represent your country. And um, but I was going through some tough times when I was doing that as well. Yeah, uh, it um, the the anxiety and the depression had followed me after my career off the ice, mm -hmm. and um, and it had gotten really really bad and really 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 intense in two thousand and seven and into two thousand and eight. And in 2008, Jeff, I had made a decision that I wasn't willing to live like that anymore. And uh, mm -hmm. I had no solutions to why I was feeling like this. I was anxious and depressed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, mm -hmm. month after month after month. And uh, driving down the interstate one day, I made a, a clear conscious decision that I was going to end it. Now that I just wanted the mm -hmm. pain to go away. And uh, my foot went down on my pedal and I was going to drive my truck into a guardrail. Um, and... and crying my eyes out. Uh, my foot just kept going. And I was, I remember going 85. I thought that 85 miles an hour was the perfect speed because people travel 85. And uh, hopefully that when I hit the guardrail, people would just think it was an accident. Um, hmm. And I felt like that was the best way to do it. And um, Thankfully, uh, and I say God willing, because without God, I wouldn't be here today. There's no question. Uh, I pulled over and I slunched over my, my wheel and just started, kept crying and made a call for hmm. help. And, um, uh, and that was the day really that my life took a turn. doesn't mean it got easier. Um, it mm -hmm. just, I was, I had that strength to make a call for help and, um, and that's what I did. And, uh, I still have days that are not easy. I was sharing with you yesterday yeah. was a very, very tough day for me. Um, you and I both had tough days yesterday. Yeah. yeah. And I know you were sharing with me exactly mm -hmm. how you dealt with it. And I was sharing with you that yeah. I pulled my journal out and, I just started writing and, and there was a lot of words on there that um, I wouldn't share on the show for sure. And people can well, probably let, let figure me, them let out. Me, <laughs> let me talk about this. I think this is important for people watching this because, you know, we, we idolize sports stars and actors and, and, you know, movie people and stuff and celebrities. And, and I'm always curious to see how people are handling or coping with what's their coping mechanisms. Now you said something when we were talking before the show that I don't do. Now I do, I wrote a book and I do write, but I don't journal. Um, so I've got my set of coping mechanisms, but I want you to expand a little bit on the journaling. I really, that's something I've not really talked a lot about because most people I talk to in this mental health space, uh, that just doesn't seem to be, you know, something that comes up much. But I, when you said it, I thought, wow, that's kind of a no brainer. I mean, yeah, isn't it? Well, it, it's one of the things that I find very powerful and I, and I recommend it to a lot of my clients when I coach, because as I was mentioning to you, I, I work with elite athletes because that's the, I can talk that talk and I can walk the walk. And, um, but yeah, journaling is something for me that has been really, really powerful. And the one thing that I make sure that I do, Jeff, is I, I don't filter it. If I want to mm -hmm. say three, you know, four swear words in a row, because that's how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. That's what goes on the paper. If I, mm -hmm. if I want to say some things on that paper that I would never say in, in uh, daily life, that's what goes on that right. paper because nobody is going right. to see that journal. It's never going to see the light of day. And, and to be honest with you, I have no idea today what I wrote yesterday. I just, do you ever go back and read? 
you ever go back and read I, them? I have. I have from time to time. It's not something I do often um, because right. I know I don't want that energy to come back. I, I was yeah, able to, yeah. to get it out. I was able to get a lot of that anger and frustration and things that I just needed to say or or verbalize to get that negative energy out. And I put it on paper and a lot of times I just leave it there. Um, but mm. I find it very, very powerful. And, and for anybody listening or watching, if that's something you want to do, just make sure I want to do not filter it because it's not mm. something you're going to share. It's not something anybody's going to see. Keep it in a private place, just like I do. My wife has no idea. My daughters have no idea that I do this or where they'd find it. Um, mm -hmm. But I just, I just let it all out. And a lot of times, it it incurs crying when I do it, and that's mm -hmm. okay. Um, there, there's something that needs to be healed. There's something that needs to get out. Um, and, and it's it's really, really a powerful process for me. And the other thing that I've done, Jeff, I'll share with you, is I've done that. I've journaled. I've gotten that stuff out. And then I've went to my fire pit and I've burned it. Yeah. And, and that's really powerful. I was going to well. ask you that. Yeah. I was, and the reason why I say that is this, after my wife died, I, I found some of her journals and, uh, I did what everybody would do. You know, she's not here. I know no harm is going to come out of reading them because I can't, you know, if there's anything in there about me, she didn't like, I can't hold her judgment because she's not here. So there was no downside, yeah. but I, in reading the journal, and that's what I was going to ask you when you say that they don't know where it is. Well, if you, if you passed away, eventually somebody discovers these things. Yeah. So, um, I think the burning idea, I know if I ever wrote a journal because there was things in my wife's journal that. I was not aware early in our marriage and I, this is the first time I've ever talked about this publicly and I'm not going to be specific, but I think you'll understand my point. I wasn't aware publicly of some of the cracks that I was neglecting to correct, you know, this as a husband, I was oblivious, you know, I was a newly, I was married. I was building up my company. I was just kind of oblivious, but in the journal, my wife was very open about her feelings towards things. And I missed, I missed it. So I think in reading the journal for me, it made me be hypersensitive to the rest of my life, not missing those opportunities. So something good came out of yeah. me finding that journal and she's not here. I I'm certainly not anything in that journal. I'm going to hold it against her. So when I, when you said about burning it, you know, if I kept a journal and I had intimate details about how I felt about family members and things, I may burn it. I mean, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could keep it that journal. I'd always be wondering, it's like having that gun in your safe. You're always wondering if, you leave it unlocked someday and some kid stumbles over yeah. it and kills themselves by accident. That, that fear is always in there, but having that journal floating around that, I don't know that. I think if I kept a journal, I'd probably do like you, you said, you'd probably destroy it. And, and there's a lot of power in that because you're yeah. taking that anger and you're burning it and you're in the way I look at it is you're turning that energy back over to the universe to, to, to right. use it for good, right? Like the, the negative and you right. and when you burn it, you turn it into the white light and you share it with the universe to, to do good mm -hmm. things with. And so there's a lot of, there's right. tremendous power in that. And, um, yeah, if anybody's led to do that, it's, it's a, it's a very, very powerful process and it's a powerful process to let go, to let go of some of these things, um, that we tend to hold on to for a long, long time. And I think it's been proven though, that as humans, we, we retain things better when we see it, hear it and write it. Yes. And that can be even ourselves doing it. Not, 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 not like you, you know, reading your book or, or watching a podcast, but actually you, you taking the initiative to write that fact that you're writing, it helps you retain some of that stuff. And again, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's a really interesting thing I'm going to start talking more about with uh, people on my show and people that, because you now are pretty heavy in the mental health. You know, that's what got me on your podcast was you guys know I'm a mental health advocate. Yes. And here's these two, you know, hockey players doing a mental health show. I thought, well, this is cool, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but so, yeah, so uh, let's talk. So we get into your professional career. Uh, obviously, at some point that comes to an end, you get into coaching. You have a very good uh, coaching career. Okay. Now we're done with pretty much done with hockey now. Yes. Uh, so tell me about Chuck's life from, from that point to today. It, uh, so after I hit rock bottom and, and it took me Jeff. Well, now, can I ask one more question? Uh, you can ask me. Anything. Were you abusing any, were you abusing any substances during this time? Um, during, I would say during college, I was over consuming alcohol a hundred, a hundred percent. 
Um, yeah. and, and I didn't yep. know it at the time. And even into my, and that was it. Nothing else. What, just alcohol. I've, I've never yeah. done any drugs in my life. It's something I'm very, Me very too. proud of. Um, I don't yep. hold in against anybody that does. Um, yep. it's just something that I've, it scares me if I'm being a hundred percent honest mm-hmm. with you, Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, because I've seen so many people just start, you know, with, with what we, what do you call basic drugs or whatever. And before you know mm-hmm. it, uh, just not very many good things happen. And, um, yeah. and so that's something I never did, but even into my professional career, um, I think I was, I was masking the anxiety with the alcohol, not that it affect mm-hmm. my game. I don't. I mean, I say it not affect my playing. It certainly affected me because I was having anxiety before games and whatnot, but I didn't know it. Um, mm. and, and today, uh, I hardly drink at all. Uh, and when right. I say I hardly drink at all, I had about a half a glass of wine a week or so ago and I poured the rest out because it tasted awful. Um, yeah. I, I just, it's just something that I choose not to do. Um, it's not yeah. bad. That's the key word. It's, yeah, it's, I just don't want to feel that way. And, and listen, right. I like to sit down with friends and have a nice glass of wine. Um, but I find it less and less all the time appealing. And right. just because I, I like to be me, I like to tackle the day or, or approach my day in a hundred percent because mm-hmm. not every day is a hundred percent for me. So if I, if I approach mm-hmm. it with alcohol in my system, a 70% day quickly becomes a 40% day. Wow. And, yeah, that's it. I've never heard it phrased that way. And I remember oh too well what those 40% days were like. Um, yeah. I don't want to be here. I want the pain to stop. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, as for, for lack of better terms, I get to be a negative Nancy. Um, yeah. Nothing is nothing works out. Breathing is even hard some days for me when it gets like that. I know that sounds crazy. I'm sure you know no, what I mean. Not. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Just everything is a struggle. And that mm-hmm. is something that I can control. I remember you saying on our show, you know, control what you can control. And, and that's mm-hmm. one thing that I can control. Um, and I still, Jeff, I'm aware to have the tendencies that I can have two drinks, but after mm-hmm. two, for me, it's a race to 22. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so I also know that at that second one, I have a decision to make. Am I going to, am I going to do this? Because after two, I get very anxious. My anxiety goes through the roof. And if I need to get to 22 as fast as I can, and then if I, and the decision-making ability, just (sighs) every drink gets worse and worse and worse. So you're making decisions in, in a context that you're not clear of mind. So like you said, 70% day comes, turns into 40% day, just like that. And if you're struggling at 70%, how the heck are you going to be doing it for Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's the wheels fall off. The, the, the bearings on the wheels are on the road. I mean, you name it, you, you have the analogy and, and, it, and it really happens. And, um, and, and I don't remember the last time I got like that because I've, I've just choose not to. Um, but I, I do remember the feeling and mm-hmm. for about the next week, my life is nothing short of a living hell. Um, mm-hmm. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm unmotivated. Um, my self-talk is in the can. Uh, it's just a really dark place for me to go. And, um, and, and listen, like I said, I enjoy one or two glasses of wine from time Mm -hmm. to time. Uh, I just have to know that that two is where I stop. Otherwise it's, it gets pretty dark and pretty dreary and, and very, very lonely to say the least. So did you have a, an epiphany moment? Did you have a pivot day where just like for me, when I woke up on December 24th of 17, I just knew that was the time just now we're just talking drinking, but the rest of the stuff, like the tour and stuff, those are, those are epiphany moments as well in, in your coaching career. Now I'm talking about, you know, uh, motivational speaking and your, your, um, coaching, um, uh, company that you have, yeah. uh, was there a pivot day or is that sort of a gradual, Finally, you said, you know what? I kind of like motivating people to have better lives, you know, or just was it boom. One day you said, this is what I want to do. It was, it was a conversation on a Friday and I wish I had the date. I, I, I know it was in 2016. I just don't have the particular date, but at this point I hadn't shared with anyone, my mother, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, nobody knew that I was having these suicidal thoughts and that I had made a wow. decision to die by suicide. And, um, and, a gentleman that's in the athletic department back at Miami university called me 
And he was like, Chuck, he's like, I'm worried about you. Where have you been? I haven't seen you in like eight years. Nobody's heard from you. And we had this long conversation. And before you knew it, Jeff, I was spilling my guts to him on everything I had been through. And when I was done, I was just like, "Uh oh, what did I just do? (laughs) And did you keep this from your wife? My wife and the lady that saved my life were the only two people that knew. That was it. Okay. So during this time, you did have an outlet. I did. With, with your wife. I did. Good, and good, the, and the lady that, that I called that saved my life, her name is Sheila. And, um, but nobody else said no. Wow. And so at the end of this conversation, I said, you know, I said, you've known what I went through on the ice. And now you know what I went through off the ice. Is there any platform for a guy like me? to share this stuff and maybe help somebody coming absolutely. up behind me. So then that's what he yeah. said. He says, absolutely. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you, you are, you're ready made for this. Yeah. And, and I just didn't know. Um, and innocently, right. I didn't know. And he said, he said to me at that point, this was in 2016. He says, do you know what the number one issue in college athletics is? I said, I, I, I don't. I said, sorry, you know, I've been living under a rock for eight years. And I said, I have no idea. He says, it's anxiety and depression. And he said, it scares the living daylights out of everybody in collegiate athletics because we're not really certain how to deal with it. Now, would you say that my answer would have been mental health, but you're saying that's just a sub, that's just um, a spoke on the wheel of mental health. Right? Yes. A hundred percent. Okay. And a hundred percent. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think mental health is the number one, just in the sports for, uh, you know, college. Yes. Uh, NBA is, you know, pro sports are maybe a tad different because at least you're getting paid, but that could add a whole set of anxiety on top of it as well. Especially like, like in golf, if you don't make putts, you don't, you don't get paid. I mean, other sports, you sign contracts, you can sit on the bench, but there's some sports where you have to, you have to perform, um, you know, every day, not just once a season. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would agree. Mental health is massive, massive problem Yes, permeating through all of society. And, and so it was at that moment that you talk about that turning point. I, I, I hung up the phone and I just knew. I had no idea what it meant. I had no mm-hmm. idea where it was going to go. I just knew that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And mm-hmm. I relentlessly pursued the, the right avenue for me. And I did all kinds of research of all the different things. And, um, and the one that really rang true was to be a life coach. And, hmm. uh, and the reason that I chose that is because I wanted to deal with what we're doing right here, right now. What can we do right. in this moment to make our life better? And what can we do hmm. in this moment to, to work through what we're dealing with? And, and yes, we can go back and we can start to heal some of the things from the past. But, but I, was, I was more worried about this moment right here because this is where life hmm. is happening. And, and that was really the platform that allowed me to do it. And, um, and from that, I started to, to really recall my whole journey because at that point, I really hadn't thought much about it. All the things that I had been right. through being cut and, you know, not making the team at Miami and, and then turning it out to be an All-American. It was just things that I did. It was just part of Chuck's life. And, but I started to map out what that looked like. And, um, and now I share a lot of that when I speak. And, and I don't share it, Jeff, to impress people, but more yeah, yeah, I understand. to impress yeah. upon them. That right. A, you can do anything you put your mind to, but B, right. on this journey, you are not alone. There's guys like mm-hmm. Jeff Johnston and Chuck Thus that want to yep. reach out. They have their hand out. We want to walk the journey with you. We love and care about you. You matter and you're worth it. All you have to do is say the word. Just, just even put a finger in the air. And let me tell you, I'm standing there right beside you. So those people listening right now, what's the difference between a, 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 like a life coach, um, a mentor, a counselor? There's all these different terms that come to mind, you know, for the lay person out there that kind of lumps them all in the one box, like, you know, motivational speaker. It's like, what's the difference? The, the biggest difference for, for me is I, I do a lot of questioning because I believe that everybody has the answers within them. But I also share a lot of my experience. And like I said, a lot of the different things, a lot of the different uh, modalities, they talk about the things in the past and they want to work on things that have happened. I'm more interested in what can we do right here, right now, in this moment to improve Mm -hmm. things right now, but to improve things Mm -hmm. moving forward as well. And I often talk a lot about filling the toolbox. What tools can I give you? What tools can we discover together? 
so that in the moment when you need something like, and I'm going to use your son, for instance, he's on the ninth mm -hmm. green and he's got mm -hmm. a 10 foot putt for par or for birdie. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden he's like, Oh goodness. Yeah, this mm -hmm. is a, this is a big one. And all of a sudden he starts to get a little anxious. What can he do in that moment so that he can calm himself down so that he can effectively, because he knows he can make that putt. He's made it 150 mm -hmm. times, but all mm -hmm. of a sudden, for some reason, some anxiousness has come over. So what tool can I give in at that present moment right there to know that if he turns around, takes a couple of deep breaths, envisions the putt being made, just walks away from it for just a minute, gets quiet, mm -hmm. recenters himself, gets dialed back in, understand that life is happening right here. You can see himself start to go from this level. He starts to come down, clears his mind, walks up, and he makes a 10-foot putt. So I like to, if that makes any sense, I like to equip it does. the athlete it with does. those tools that even though Chuck's not there, they can dig in and be like, okay, which one of these do I need? You know what? A little deep breathing is going to help. A little bit of quiet time away from my ball is going to help. Some centering is going to help. And just knowing and, and being reconnected is going to help. And so you grab them all, you do your little thing, and you go make your putt. Well, you know where your biggest <laughs> profit center could be is parents. Because I tell you what, it is very emotionally draining as, and I'll, I'll use golf, for example, because golf is one sport where like this weekend, you know, he had 36 holes on the first day. They, they, they golfed for 12 hours. Wow. Now you tell me a sport where you have to do it for 12 hours and one swing can ruin your round. Yeah. You know, any other sport I can call timeout, Chuck go in for me. I can do in, I can do whatever I can substitute. I can, I can, uh, there's a halftime, you know, golf is just that sport that is the epitome of life. It's like, you know, you can't call timeout when somebody dies. Yeah. You can't, you can't substitute somebody when you get fired from your job. You know, your wife files divorce. You can't, you can't, you know, bring in a substitute. It's like golf is just, I think one of those sports that's just up there with wrestling, I would say as well, where it's just you and an opponent and it's you and the ball. And you know, the first hole you snap hook it out of bounds, dude, you got 17 more. You better get your crap together very quickly or this explodes in other sports. Like I said, you, you can, there's just ways you can kind of, you can kind of numb the pain, but golf isn't. And no. I struggle with that with my son. Uh, and he struggles with that. And then as a dad, you know, it's easy for me to live in the past. And after the round saying, man, you just, you know, like the other day he played great until like the second to the last hole, then he got a triple bogey. It's like his only triple in 54 holes. And it was the second to the last hole. It's like, but as a dad, what you just said, I got to put myself into, okay, but that's over. You know, what, what did you learn from that triple bogey? What can we do tomorrow? So the next time, cause you know, as an athlete, you're going to be presented the same opportunity again, <laughs> it's almost a guarantee yes. and you're still playing the sport. You can't go hide. So I think, you know, your job, I think could morph into counseling parents. I mean, I could probably need a therapist more than my son does. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because as you're walking through that scenario, I dialed into Sunday at the masters and, yeah. and, and is it Sheffley? Is that how you pronounce the joke? Yeah. Scheffler, Scotty Scheffler. Scotty Scheffler. What's he do on drive one of hole number one of the final round shanks it left and he's, and he's in with the crowd yeah. and, I'm, and I'm thinking, Oh boy. You know, here's yeah. a fellow that hasn't won a major. And this isn't the club championship <laughs> at, you know, your Podunk Country Club. Yeah. This is the Masters, dude. And he's 24. It's like, geez. Yeah. And, you and know, he admirably, admirably found yeah. a way to par that hole. And, and yeah. everybody knows what happens. He went on to win the Masters. Yeah. But, but at that moment, if he doesn't dial in, and I can assure you that from that tee box to that second shot, there were some tools being utilized to get him centered, hundred oh, percent focused. His caddy was probably saying, yes. "Go to your toolbox. Go to your toolbox. Yes. Go to your toolbox." Yeah. No, I I agree with you. That level, those those athletes at that level, it's the difference is almost always not talent no, because they're all good. 
Right. There good. you go. They all hit the drivers 350 yards. Yes. They all hit great irons. They're all good putters. It's, yes. you know, and no different probably in hockey and, and, and most sports it's, it's, it's the ones that believe in themselves, but they can handle the adversity. A hundred percent. And because in every you know, sport there's adversity, it doesn't matter if you're yeah. golf, tennis, football, right. baseball, hockey, gymnastics, uh, yep. it doesn't matter. There's going to be adversity and, and the ability to tap into your toolbox at that moment to get things back on the rails. Uh, a lot of teams, a lot of times means the difference between winning and maybe coming second or third. And, uh, and there's certainly no coincidence that the best motivational speakers and the best life coaches are, are women and men are, are ex athletes. I mean, almost, almost without question. Yeah. And, and a lot of the things that I do, uh, as we were talking about before the show, I just draw on my personal experience and, yeah. and, you know, take Ian again, just because we're talking in, in golf and, yeah. um, yep. you know, I would just share with him, Hey, I remember this time. Is that kind of what you're feeling? Chuck, how do you know? Mm-hmm. Well, because I've, I've been in a, even though it's hockey right. to golf, it's the situation is similar, right? I was a goalie. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't anybody that was going to stop the puck behind me. If I didn't make the save, the red light went on. 10, 15, 20,000 people stood up at you. <laughs> and they start chanting, you're a bum, you're a bum, you suck, all these other different things. And, and you're like, yeah, yeah. That, you can't hide well, either. You're in a big outfit. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you, got, you look like a giant grizzly bear out there. You know, you guys are, and you take off all that stuff and it's just a, it's just a human underneath that whole goalie outfit, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's just nowhere to hide. And, and so it, it, it's, there's a lot of those things that I like to draw comparisons on and, um, and there's, there's pressure, you know? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just me and the shooter or whatever. And, um, but yet it's interesting because I would guess that your son, Ian, like myself, we, we loved that pressure. And, and I often mm-hmm. say that in my next life, I want to be a, a relief pitcher. I want to be the guy mm-hmm. that comes in, you know, in the bottom of the eighth bases are loaded. Nobody out. We're winning three, two, and, and I've got the heat and I'm bringing it. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's just because I like that, that position. Is it easy? No. Um, but man, there's just something about it that I, I think the same appeal to, to goaltending. It just, it really attracted me to it. And so you get into this, uh, coaching, um, talk a little bit about your coaching program and kind of the type of clients that I'm going to say are best fits for you, you know, and cause I think, you know, as a, as an owner of a coaching program, you have to be, you have to vet your clients fairly well. Cause you don't want a lot of toxicity. I don't mean that to be disparaging because obviously you're working with people that have toxicity or they wouldn't be with yeah. you. Um, but you don't want to have some people that are so self-defeating that or self-loathing that loathing that, you know, it actually starts bringing you down too, you know? Um, so do you, is there a certain mindset of a client that you're kind of looking for or a certain, Another question I'd ask you is what type of sports you primarily work with or maybe average age or, you know, does it matter? It's, it really, I like to classify it as elite athletes and maybe that's a a crazy way to, but a lot of times it can be high schools through the pros. And um, the the person that I, I ultimately really like to deal with is that person that is looking for that mental um, edge, that mental sustainability, that mental resilience that it doesn't matter what they're dealing with in the mental mm-hmm. health realm, or they want to take their game to the next level or both. And mm-hmm. I help them do that. I walk that journey with them. And there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's steps that we take. It's, it's not a willy nilly deal. Um, I have a process that I put all of my athletes through and, mm-hmm. and it's refined over time and, and it will continue to be refined over time. I will continue to add things that I find very helpful and, and, what we do is we take them from where they are and to where they didn't know they could be, but they wanted to be. And right. once we get them to there, then we start to work on where we take them that they never even thought was possible when they were still over here. Um, and get them out of the past so much. Get them out of the past. And and so really, you know, cr- crossing that chasm, I like to say a lot of times, Jeff, because they're just like, I want to be that person. I want to be that guy that can make the putt. I want to be the guy that can make the shot. I want to be reliable. I want to be a starter. Oh, okay, well, let's get you there. And once right. we get them there, okay, now what do you want to do? Well, Chuck, I want, I want to shoot, you know, 30. I want to shoot six under par for the, for the yeah. front nine. Yeah. Okay, then let's go do that. Really? Yeah. yeah. What, 
it's interesting when you think about athletes that come to mind for mental toughness, you and I could write down five people and I bet you three of them are going to be the same. Yeah. No, you, you have obviously more answers that'd be hockey related and I, I wouldn't be able to, but if we didn't, if we didn't count hockey, just wrote down our top five. Um, I know right now it would be, you know, Jordan and tiger and Ali. Yeah. Those would be my top three right there. The other one I was going to say was Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) And we were, we were two for three and, and Ali was absolutely. And, um, because I really think Jeff, that there's a major, a piece that winds them all together between the mental health, the uh, persistence and resilience, and then taking your game to the next level. Because I would bet if you sat down with Michael Jordan, at some point he dealt with some of this stuff as well. I I don't have that. Oh yeah. But but I would have to bet. Yeah. Ali, probably the same thing, even maybe more so. Absolutely. And Kobe Bryant, I would have to say for sure, because all of these great athletes, they all had one thing in, in common is they were extremely resilient and they did the things that everybody else wasn't willing to do. And, right. and honestly, that's a lot of what I put in my program is that's a lot of the coaching that I do is once we get them over that chasm, we get them to a place that they've got a toolbox that's full. They understand they're not mm-hmm. alone. Okay, now let's start bringing you and making you the 1% of the 1%. And what does that mm-hmm. look like? And, and all of a sudden, they just start making minor tweaks. And they're like, holy cow, like, really? And I'm like, it's not me. Don't look at me. I just, I'm suggesting that this is what we do. You're doing the right. work because ultimately it's up to the athlete to do all the work. And uh, it is fun, I fun, this, fun to watch them. I use the results. same type of story you're talking about. Uh, sorry to interrupt you yeah. there. Um, with, with trauma and, and recovery and, and substance abuse is I use the, you know, you'll find your, when you find your why you'll find your way. Yes. And I challenge everybody that we all have a why you may not know it yet. It hasn't revealed itself yet. Maybe, maybe it really isn't there yet. It just doesn't exist. Uh, maybe my why was October 4th, 2016 when Seth died. Maybe it was when my wife died. I don't know, but my way certainly was really revealed to me after those, after those events. So for the average person that doesn't have like that type of an event there, it could be something you know, I, everybody has to have something inside. They have to find a reason to play. You can't just be playing because your mom and dad wants you to play, yeah. you know, or, or your dad was a great goalie. So now you have to be a goalie. You know, it's like, there's gotta be something inside it. So people battling substance abuse and I say trauma and grief, those type of things. I think the, the, um, the pivot, I guess, is I like, I say that word a lot. The pivot point, I guess, is trying to figure out what is that? What is that? Why, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? And I asked Ian this a lot about golf when he's kind of struggling. I say, why, why are you playing golf? I mean, I'm not saying that, like, why do you play you idiot? (laughs) I'm saying, I'm saying, why are you playing? You know? And I try to try to let that, try to let him answer that himself, but it's hard for me to not talk. So I always kind of interrupt him, but I'm always asking him during the moments of adversity, you know, why are you playing? You playing to avoid adversity or are you playing to fight through adversity? Yep. Because you know, in sports as in life, adversity is on the doorstep every freaking day. And it, sometimes it's on the back, back door, the garage door, it's on your roof. <laughs> I mean, it's coming in. And so if you're not playing sports, you're going to have adversity in life. You're going to have adversity in your marriage, you're adversity in your job. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's a sports is such a great, you know, snapshot of life. It really is. And you are so right. Because all sports. All sports. And, and as you said that, I, I think part of that, and I'm going to use the word addicted because I think yeah, for a I, lot of perfect. us, yep. it becomes an addiction. Um, that pursuit of excellence, that pursuit of personal growth, that pursuit of I, I can do anything. And, and that's not egotistical when I say that, because at the time you're not thinking, oh yeah, if I do this, I'm the man, you know, you're really not thinking, or I never did. And I don't think a lot of athletes do. I think it becomes an addiction to, if I get in a slump to come out of it bigger, better, faster, stronger. 
Um, and that can be the opposite effect too. Like look, look at, you know, it was Simone Biles, I think, and, uh, she withdrew yeah. and Michael Phelps has talked about his addiction is, uh, his mental health issue. So you're right. It can be an addiction in, in a, in a constructive way, Yes, but it, it certainly can be a, an addiction in a deconstructive way. Absolutely. And I think that's where the value of having someone to speak to a lot of times mm -hmm. can come in. I wish I would have had somebody when I was playing to talk to, because I know, mm -hmm. My approach was always, you are never going to outwork me. You're going to stay up till midnight. I'm <laughs> staying up till one. You're going to get up at six. Okay. I'm getting up yeah. at five. And part of that is I still have that in my coaching today because I have such a desire to be a better person so that mm -hmm. I can show up as a better person. I can bring more to the table for the people that I'm working with. And, and there's times that it becomes unhealthy for me because I run myself into the ground. I become, and that's what happened yesterday. I became so exhausted. I had, I had kind of overdone my boundaries and I, and I just stepped on my right. boundaries and, right. and then I pay the price. And it's a realization that, Hey Chuck, you can do this. You're doing it, but you have to maintain your boundaries. You have to remember the healthy way to get there. And, and that's the approach that I take with my athletes as well, because a lot of them they're Chuck, I, I took the day off yesterday. Okay. That's perfect. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. I, I missed a day of practice. Sometimes less is more. In this situation, mm -hmm. that's exactly what it was. It was okay that you didn't pick the clubs up. It's okay that you didn't run 10 miles. It's okay that you didn't mm -hmm. shoot 100 pucks. That's okay. Because mm -hmm. today, you're a better person for that because you took the day off mentally. You went and just relaxed. You did some other things. Now you went today and you hit 100 balls in the batting cage and you put 80 of them over the fence because you were fresh. You took that day. Does that make sense? Like it, it does. And I think, I think for like, you know, for older athletes that are not really competing anymore, you know, professionally or collegiately, but they're maybe running the, you know, 5k or they're going to go play in the club championship and they're playing at a level where they're still trying to compete. There becomes this realistic set of expectations where you, you know, your body really well. Like I know my limits when I'm working out, yeah. I feel a little ting in my, in my groin or my leg. I just shut down my elliptical yeah. in the past. I would just say I'm Rocky. You know, I just, you know, run through it. I, I can't do that at 56. Yeah. I know I'm going to get hurt. And then, and then now recovery at my age is a disaster, <laughs> you know? So I think, I think as we go from like Ian and, and, and kids and go to college and then after that, you, you sports can be there. You know, I mean, you maybe not be able to play hockey into your fifties, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of adult leagues around the country. I was in Colorado the other day with some friends and they're my age and they play in husband and wife hockey leagues. And it's like rec basketball in, in Colorado. Yeah. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah. So, you know, you can still play sports and you could still have that competitiveness, but you have to know your limits as you get older. So you don't get injured. That's the big thing. Absolutely. And, and really that, in my opinion, it goes to even these young collegiate athletes and young professionals, you have to know your limits and you have to, right. and, and not in a negative way. What I mean is you have to listen to your body. If you're tired, it's okay to take a day off. It's okay to maybe that day you're just going to do some some light elliptical, or you're going to go for a walk, or you're going to do something lighter. Mm -hmm. You're not going to put yourself through the rigors right. and tomorrow you're going to be better for it. And a lot of the awareness that I like to bring to my coaching is around that. How are you feeling? What, what is your body telling you? What is your mind telling you? What are you, let's dig into how everything feels because so many of us just go on autopilot and we just like a bull in a China shop. All we do is we want to be the best and at all costs, we're going to get there. But if we were to navigate it just a little bit and understand the awareness piece and understand what our body's telling us and our mind is telling us, we're going to get there a whole lot easier and it's going to be sustainable. And that's the big difference. So as a coach, what do you tell an athlete? you got two athletes that are both given the same adversity, but one uses it to get them to a higher level of success. The other uses it for an excuse. And, and I'm saying that maybe they're both legitimate. You know, the person using an excuse could actually be right. It, it yeah. could really be that, that it was rainy that day and, and that your hand, your, you know, it's hard to grip the club. I get that. But then one kid like Jack Nicholas used to say, this is a great quote. He'd go to the golf course to the range, like in high school and college, and it was really bad weather. And he said, you know, I'd go there to bring my golf balls and I would just sit on the range and listen to people. And he said, I could tell you really quickly, the ones I didn't have to compete against that day. Yeah. 
the ones that were bitching and moaning and complaining about the weather and how cold it was. And, and he said, I just sit there and I said, that guy's, I'm not going to compete against that guy. But the guy that's not saying anything is down there in the corner grinding. That's my competition. And you know, it's true. That's, and it's not just golf. It's every sport. You get the, the ones that just, uh, they're given a set of circumstances and it becomes, well, their, their reason why they didn't succeed. Do you think sometimes people are so afraid of trying hard and failing that there's an embarrassment issue there that they're better off not even trying at all because then, then they can't look embarrassed. A hundred percent. And the other thing that some people are afraid of, some people are afraid of success because if they're Mm. afraid of success, then what are people going to start? Are people like, if we succeed, then people are going to start to expect this. And do I have it in me to deliver time after time after time? So a lot of times I'll dig into that as well. Let's dig into what this looks like. And because at the end of the day, and I don't say this often, but you can have excuses or you can have results, but you can't have both. Right. right. And so a lot of times for that young athlete that, well, you know, I had this reason and this reason, well, let's, let's start to dig into this a little bit because there's, mm-hmm. it really had nothing to do with the weather because mm-hmm. 30 other people played and, and they all played pretty darn well and, Absolutely. and they were battling yep. the wet club just like you were. Yep. So there's more to it. And I think through conversation and not telling them that that's where you're headed, but just having friendly conversation. Well, let's talk about this. So, so how did you feel? Well, you know, I didn't Mm -hmm. know if I'd be able to play the whole round successfully. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so there it starts, right. And they'll, they'll, they'll divulge it because those answers are inside of them. And sometimes, most times, Jeff, they don't even know what, what the reason is. They just knew that they didn't bring their, their complete game that day. And now they have, yeah. wow, it was the weather. We're going to blame it on that. No, 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 not, not quite so quick. There's, there's more the, to the, this. The great thing about what you're doing, Chuck, is it all this is transferable to the business world. It's transferable to your marriage. Yes. It's transferable to your relationship, relationship with your neighbors. It's transferable with, you know, everything that you do every day in regards to a set of circumstances that is presented to you either as an excuse, you know, you're a victim or as an opportunity, you're a victor. Yes. You don't even have to win to be a victor. No. And, and that's, that is exactly right. And, the, and the, peop, the point that a lot of people miss out on, Jeff, is just that, that all the things that we're taught and that we learn in the sporting arena, they all transfer to life in every aspect, your marriage, right. your friends, your work, doesn't matter. It all transfers because there are going to be rough patches in your marriage. There's going to be tough days in the office. There's going to be... And how are you going to deal with them? Are you going to walk in and mm-hmm. pound your chest? Or are you going to kick the door? Right. Or, or, you know, are you just going to storm right. out on your wife and not answer the questions and not talk through the right. issue? No, that, that's, those things aren't really acceptable. So by, by right. working through it and being willing to, to talk head on, to give them communication skills. And, and one of the things that these young athletes need today, in my opinion, are communication skills. Let's stop mm-hmm. texting. Let's pick right. up the phone. Let's jump on a Zoom call and let's have a right. face-to-face conversation so we can see each other. I even love to yeah. meet with my, my clients in person at some point. Let's sit down and spend a day or two right. together because we can really get to know each other when you spend some time in their energy. And, and you don't always get that. You don't get that on a text message. You and I both I just know laugh that. Because the other night, I'm, I think I was sitting down here and my, son was, my other son was upstairs and I'm texting him. And he's upstairs. <laughs> and I think to myself, dude, you're the guy that rips on these kids, but you're down here texting your son. So I just got my butt up from the couch, walked up the stairs, talked to my son. And I thought, you know, gosh, this is just so easy to just fall back to these, these ways that the, the road of least resistance is to get up off the couch. And, you know, it's easier just to sit there and text, yeah, I guess. It is. And, you know, I think you're right. I think that's um, an issue with uh, not just the kids today in their problem solving methods is they're looking for the, the quick short fix and nobody wants to, you know, it's, it's just like, and you want to build muscle mass. You got to spend time in the gym. You want to get better at running. You got to go run. You got to, you want to get better at talking with people. Then you got to go to, you know, Toastmasters or, or, or get involved in speaking publicly. Yes. But, um, do you want to improve your golf game? You got to go to the range. Yes. You know, if you want to improve, uh, hockey, you got to go to the, the rink and practice on your own, yes. you know? And, and it's interesting yeah. that you say that because, <clears throat> and, and 
I don't suspect that my daughters are any different than your sons and everybody no. listening that their children are the same is, is they've gotten such a, a mindset that I want answers now. And they're not thinking it. Mm-hmm. They're just expecting because when they hit send, when they hit, you know, whatever, they get instant results. And yeah. when dad, when they text me in the middle of the day and I'm doing something or I'm, I'm having a meeting or I'm on my way somewhere and I say, and you don't respond. <laughs> don't re- what happened, dad? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, Hey, can we talk about this at dinner? Yeah. Oh, really? Like, yeah, that, right. that's like three hours from now. So it's going to, I have to look you in the <laughs> eye and actually talk. <laughs> that's terrifying. Yes. And, and, and I often tell my daughters, I mean, you are, you may not want to sit and talk to your dad. You may not want to sit and have a conversation with your coach. You'd rather text or not talk. Yeah. But those skills right there, the communication skills are going to take you so far in life. You will resolve a lot of issues. You will resolve a lot of things by just putting that phone away and having a good old human interaction by talking. And you can gauge the person where they are. You can understand the tone of what they're saying. You can, you can have immediate feedback back and forth. Um, and I often say we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You can actually listen mm-hmm. a little bit as opposed to just read. And, uh, and I'm just a big communicator when it comes to speaking or let's jump on a zoom, let's do it this way so that we can have that human interaction. I, I crave that. I do. Yeah. And, and I think they may or may not know it. I think on some level they do as well. It's just gotten so ingrained in them that they can text and Snapchat and, you know, TikTok or whatever they do, all these different platforms. Yeah. Um, but I still say that there's a lot of power in the human conversation. You know, to add on top of that, coming from the lens that I have with my son and my wife is that there's a last time for everything and you never know when that last time could be today. And so, you know, every time that I go back and think of the last conversation I had with my son. I remember in the garage, you know, got out of, he got out of prison. He wanted to move in. I wouldn't let him cause I had my wife and the two boys here. And I just said, I said, Seth, you got to quit drinking alcohol. I turned around. He got in the car with his friends. I never saw him again. Yeah. And my wife the same way. We had to talk on the telephone cause I had bought her a house and we were going through a separation and I, I, uh, it was a conversation that didn't go real well. Um, on a topic I won't talk about, but it didn't end well. And, um, this is the last time I ever talked to my wife. And so now in hindsight, I use that, you know, that negative visualization, I guess is what the Stoics used to call it. Where now as I think that, you know, car crashes happen, Yeah, you know, things happen. And I don't want my boys to say the last time I talked to my dad was on a text. Yeah. That's... You know, or the last time I talked to my son was on. So now I, obviously I do text my boys, oh, yeah. but Absolutely. I'm a little more cognizant that this could be my last day here or their last day here. It, yeah. And, and, and it will be one, one day. day. It will be hundred percent probability. Absolutely. Cause uh, uh, the old saying is not, not one of us makes it out of here alive. And uh, yeah. the one thing that, that my wife and I have done and, I look forward to it, Jeff, every single evening is we sit down as a family of four and have dinner together. And I, I so value that time. It's a time that telephone, like phones are not allowed at the table. Right. Um, you know, if you're sitting there, even on your smartwatch, I'm like, Hey, 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 they can wait. This is, this is our time. This, this, this belongs to the four of us. And we talk about our day. We laugh and we, we get laughing so much we cry and, um, but we share everything and we get into some very, very, uh, wonderful and strong conversations about what the day was like, how they're feeling, how I'm feeling. And, um, it's really a magical time. And, and like you said, there'll be a day that whatever, for whatever reason that, you know, they go off to college and we don't get to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but I tell you, I cherish every single one of them and, and they all hold a very special place. Sometimes they're very simple and sometimes they're, they're very in depth, but, uh, every one of them holds a very special place in my heart. Well, with that, um, I value our friendship at this point. It's uh, pretty new and, uh, I will meet you eventually, whether it's on the tour or at some capacity, but, uh, it's been a, a great honor to be able to be on your podcast with Clint and have that awesome conversation we had and, now to repay you to, to have this conversation with you. And, um, 
I wish you nothing but the best. I know you do very well in your endeavor that you're doing right now with your coaching program. And how can people reach you if they have questions or if they want to talk about possibly working with you? What's the easiest way to re reach you? You can, you can go to my website, which is thecompassionateconnection.com, or you can email me at chuck at thecompassionateconnection.com. Um, either way, is you can contact me through the website or by email, and, uh, and I will get right back to you. And um, yes, Jeff, thank you as well. Uh, you're right. Our friendship is very new, although I feel like I've known you for, for lifetimes because we've had so many. It's like one of those guys I feel like I went to high school <laughs> yes, with, you know? <laughs> yes. And, and it's funny when you're on this, when you're on this journey and you're open-minded to meeting new people, you run into a lot more people like that. You, you do. And, you know, and, and like I said, when, when we connected on the first time and now this is, but I suspect that there's going to be a whole lot more to this friendship. And, um, yeah. I look forward to supporting you and the tour and, and all the wonderful work you're doing because it's, uh, it's amazing and, and just keep it up. And, and, and like you, you and I both had tough days yesterday and, and just know yeah. that there's a friend at the other end of the line yep. that you can reach out to on those days. Um, and his name is Chuck because I get it. Um, and those, those well, the, back at you, man. Well, thank you. And I know a lot of people say that you get older, your circle gets smaller and I'm fighting against that narrative every day. I'm adding to my circle. It's not my circle ain't getting smaller. <laughs> and if, if everyone wants to tell you that that's the way they want to live their life, that's up to them. Yes. But you know, I'm minimalizing a lot of things in my life, like my house and my possessions, but I'm expanding my relationships exponentially. That's... And I do that for many reasons. And one is just to keep meeting interesting people like yourself. So Listen, appreciate your time. Uh, this was great. And uh, I, uh, I'll be in touch with you shortly. But uh, thanks for being on the Living on the Turd podcast. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it as well.